This morning I have the privilege to uh, put the back end of a bookend on a five-part series, uh, which uh, Thomas already kind of uh, mentioned, as the chart on the screen uh, shows. Uh, there are five primary principles, truths, and teachings of Scripture that were the driving force behind the Reformation that happened literally almost 500 years ago. And uh, they didn't all start in the very beginning with uh, Martin Luther uh, and the nailing of the 95 Theses. He actually developed himself with more time uh, in some of the principles that became eventually what the Reformation is all about. There were other men that were influenced and followed behind Martin Luther. And uh, this morning, the one that we kind of want to focus on a little bit is uh, John Calvin. Uh, he was actually a, uh, greatly influenced by Martin Luther, a Frenchman. Uh, he ended up, his, he's famous for his ministry in Switzerland, but uh, he was actually from uh, France. And uh, he, he contributes to the five solas, uh, the question of what's the ultimate purpose for which we have been created and redeemed? Why, why get saved? For what purpose? Uh, I'm not going to have the time to get into this uh, today just because there's so many other things to do, but in America, why is it that most people feel that they need to get saved? It's so that they can be a better businessman, be more successful, make more money. It's all about who? us. That's not the reason why God created us, and that's not the reason he saved us. And John Calvin was one who, one of the focuses of everything he taught, and everything that he saw in scripture was, is the reason why we were created was for the glory of God. And what does that look like? Calvin wrote that he believed that he was in the presence of God, living out his life in his presence and giving him glory. And he saw that everything that he did was for that purpose. And so uh, what we're going to do this morning is, uh, what does it mean to glorify Christ? We hear that term all the time. We sang it how many times this morning, right? We want to give you glory. What does that mean? I remember as a kid, I would hear that all the time, and I was like, glory, glory, what is glory? What does that mean? And so the reason why we're going to take the time to unpack that is what Scripture has to say is because we don't want to be about doing something that Scripture doesn't say we should be doing. And so we, what we want to do is do what Calvin did. He went to the Scriptures, and that's where he found the principles and the truths that became the driving force for all of his ministry. And so uh, what we're going to do is uh, look at a passage. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 11, there's a verse there uh, at the end of uh, what is kind of a section of the book of Romans. It's Romans 11:36. And let me give you the background to Paul's first 11 chapters. Paul is writing to the Christians who are in the city of Rome and there are Jews and Gentiles who are in this church. And there's conflict occurring between the Jews and the Gentiles. And what Paul is doing is sharing with them the gospel message, what is the gospel. And then he's also in chapters 9 through 11 trying to explain 
where do the Jews fit and where do the Gentiles fit in this whole scheme of God? And so uh, if you want to go back uh, later and read chapters 9 through 11, that's what he's doing. He's helping them understand that when he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, what he's saying is, is, gentlemen, can we get along and serve the Lord together? That's what the whole book of Romans is about, is the gospel and how that gospel then means we work together and we live out as Christians together. So what he's explaining in chapters 9 through 11 is, that God in his sovereignty chose a man named Abraham and said, through you, I'm going to build a great nation. And through you, the Messiah is going to come. But lo and behold, what happens when the Messiah finally comes? What do his own children do? What do his own people do? They reject him. And so everybody's scratching their head going, what? Has God's plan failed? What's going on here? And so what Paul goes on to explain to the Gentiles is it's actually God's plan that he would harden the hearts of some of, actually, the majority of the nation of Israel so that they would reject God. Now, how's that a good thing? The reason is, is because in their rejecting, the Gentiles would be one to Christ. And so he's, he's letting them know, this church, that God is doing a plan and he's actually hardening the hearts of the nation of Israel so that the Gentiles would come to faith. But wait, there's more. If you keep reading before midnight tonight, you'll find out there's something else. He says that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then Israel will return back to their Messiah. So he's telling the Gentiles, be grateful that even though you didn't receive the prophets, you didn't receive the scriptures, you didn't receive the promises that were given to Israel, be thankful that God has chosen to save you. And don't resent the Jewish people who've uh, rejected God. God is about his business. And there's a time coming when he's going to uh, turn them back to himself. As it says in Zechariah, uh, when he returns, they will look on him whom they've pierced and repent. And he's letting them know, guys, it's in my time. But in the meantime, there is a remnant of all times of Jews who are responding to the gospel news. And then he sums up this long explanation with this one verse. Let's read it together. Romans 11:32 or 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It's like, wow. What, what is Paul saying? When he says from him, he's saying, guys, both Jew and Gentile, you guys are from God. Why? Because God's the creator. You came from him. As it says in uh, Revelation, when the 24 elders are worshiping uh, uh, Christ in heaven, they say, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things. And because of thy will, they existed and were created. 
Why were they created? For him. Through him. What does that mean? From him, through him. If it weren't for him, Jesus, coming and being our Savior, would we know God? Would we be able to go to him and return to him? No. So God not only creates us, he brings them Savior so that through him, we can end up going back to him. And what the meaning there is of to him is, the plan is, is that he's going to be the ultimate king. Because see, what were the promises that he gave the nation of Israel? He's going to come back and rule as the king over the whole world. And where is he going to reign? In Jerusalem. And who gets to be in the prime real estate? Any realtors here this morning? What's the rule? Three words. Location, location, location. And who gets to be right around God's throne in the temple? The Jews. And so he's telling the the Gentiles, don't don't forget, who's going to be the closest? Yeah, don't treat them with disrespect. Even though they've rejected me, many of them, they're going to have a privileged place. Why? Because that's what I chose. And why did I choose them? As we know in the Torah, he says, I didn't choose them because they were great and they were numerous. He said, I chose them because it gives me glory. It's all about his glory. And John Calvin knew that. And he understood that. And that whole concept that's listed here in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul was described for the first time in its greatest picture. It's actually the picture of God's glory that, that Thomas just read for us. So uh, what we're going to do is look at what are the things that bring God glory. Because see, if, if I, as a parent, if I were to tell my kids, Uh, to go do something, but they have no idea what it is I just told them to do, how successful will they be? They won't be. So if we're told to give glory to God, the question is, is what glorifies him? Isn't that a decent question? Yeah, that's what I'd want to know. I remember as a kid, I, I was like, everyone else must know, but I have no idea what that means. And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at this passage that Thomas just read, which is kind of the famous picture, and then Jesus uh, embodies the principles of this passage uh, and find out that there's six primary facets that are his, bring him glory. And so we're, we're going to look at them in this, this uh, situation with Moses. But let me tell you what's going on here. Uh, Thomas would be reading up here forever if he was to give you the background behind what was occurring but Moses had a bad day, okay? And you may remember the bad day that Moses had. God just delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves. They were, they were there 400 years. He takes a whole nation. Now, think about this. I came from the San Fernando Valley of L.A., and there's uh, 2.1 million people in the San Fernando Valley of L.A. By the way, that's the population of Idaho, Okay? And so when you think about that, God took 600,000 men and then their whole family, and they were pretty sizable families, okay? So think about that, 600,000, do a little math, 
you're looking at two to three million people on the move. Can you imagine the state of Idaho going camping? Okay. <laughs> let's move up. You know, let's rumble. Let's go. How in the world do you do that? This was a huge scenario. So God does miracles. Uh, he defeats Pharaoh and his armies by parting the waters on the Red Sea, brings them to uh, Mount Sinai where God said he would bring them when he first met with Moses and said, I want you to deliver them. And they finally get there and God says, I want to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And the people said, that's a good thing. And they actually agreed to the covenant. They did. They just agreed to the covenant. And Moses says, or God says to Moses, come up to the mountain and I'm going to finish giving you the law. And what happened? Wow, Moses is, according to my daytimer and my sundial, he's been up there a long time. He's gone. He's left us. We're out here in the most God-forsaken area, literally. It's not God-forsaken because God's literally dwelling right there in the most incredible place, and he's left us. And lo and behold, the people convince Aaron and his brother to fashion a golden calf. And then they commit immoral acts in broad daylight within days after entering into a covenant with the God who's right there in front of them on the mountain. Wow. So God says, our little uh, uh, get-together here needs to come to an end, Moses. Uh, there's problems down in the camp. Encourage you to go down. And as he goes down and he sees the idolatry and the immorality occurring, in his anger, he throws the tablets and shatters them. And God says, I want to obliterate this whole people. I want to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses intercedes. And he says, God, what about your reputation? What if the other nations were to hear that you brought them out from Egypt, an incredible force and power and signs and miracles, only to kill them? What would people think about your reputation and your name? Moses was concerned about the reputation of God. And then God said, you know what? Wipe them out, Moses. I'll start with you like I did Abraham. We'll start a completely new nation with you because you're a righteous man. They're not. And, God, and Moses said, no, no, don't do that. Come up with us. Then the next thing he said is, why don't you guys go up in the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And that's why where it comes to the reading that we had this morning where he says, no, 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 it's important. What makes us special? It's that the very presence of God is with us. And if you don't come with us, then they're not going to believe that I'm your leader. And they're not going to believe that you are his people. And in this, I mean, bad day. <laughs> Can you imagine having this conversation? And in the midst of this, Moses asks for a favor. 
can I see your glory? That would encourage me a lot. (laughs) Can I know your ways? Can I see your glory? And what occurs next has all the components of what gives God glory. And that's what we're going to look at uh, for just a second. Because these are the things that the Reformers saw not only here in the nation of Israel, but in the person of Christ and uh, should be in the church. And so uh, what is it? that God does because he says I'm going to show you my glory but you can't see my face uh, and so I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to show you my glory what does he show him it's very important because that's what we're called to do to give him glory so the first thing that he does if you look at uh, uh, verse uh, chapter 34 if you have there uh, what Thomas had read Exodus 34 Uh, verse 6, one of the first things that he does is he mentions his name. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, or Yahweh El, or I am God. That's my name. And as you remember, when, when God appeared to Moses, and Moses uh, was told that he was supposed to go tell all these two million Jews that they were to follow him, uh, and he's like, uh, well, how can I convince them that they're to follow me? Who am I to say sent me? And he tells him his name, Yahweh, for the first time. And it's a very intimate, personal name, one he's not used before. And Yahweh means, I am. I am. Just think about that, the implications of the statement, I am. He's eternal. He wasn't created. He always has been. I exist. And all existence comes from me. And there's also an implication to the name of intimacy that God wanted to have an intimate relationship with Moses and with his people. I am Yahweh. And the second aspect, right after he says his name, there in Exodus 34, 6, he says, I am compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives, yet punishes the guilty. You're like, wow, that's great information, God, but uh, I want to see your glory. You know what he's sharing with them? Who I am. What kind of God is it that you worship? See, you'll find many people will say, oh, I worship God. Uh, in fact, let me, let me do it differently. When I'm out witnessing, and uh, someone will ask me, this happened many times, do you believe, does your God believe that people go to hell? And I said, sure, the God of Scripture does. Well, my Jesus doesn't. The question is, is where did their Jesus come from? Okay, how did they get that Jesus? And what it is, is if there's no, if we don't know who God is because he told us who he is, then that means I invent him, and that, what does that make me? God. 
Okay? So God has to tell us who he is. And that's what he's doing in showing his glory. His character is his glory. Any of you ever read about the Greek gods? What kind of folk are they? Yeah, they, they lie, they deceive, they're immoral, they cheat, uh, they hurt people, they're wicked. According to the Greeks, that's who their gods are. Notice who Yahweh is. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. The word loyal love is what it means in the Greek. I'm loyal to my people. And I am truth. Now think about this. He's saying who he is and he's emphasizing his patience, his grace, and his mercy. Why is that important? What just happened? Right? He was going to wipe them all out. And they deserved it. And yet he's saying, I'm a covenant keeper. Isn't that good news? That our God is a covenant keeper? So it's important who our God is. When I'm doing biblical counseling and uh, you're, you're talking and, and people say, well, I don't trust God. Because in their mind, God is not trustworthy. Is that the God of Scripture? No, that's the God of their hurt. Maybe something with their, their father who was a liar, a deceiver, a man who didn't keep his word. And they've attached the father God, their perspective of their own human father. But that's not the God of Scripture. That's why it's so crucial that the second component, first is his name. By the way, when each of you met each other today for the first time, what did you say? Hi, my name is Bruce. What's yours? See, it's the first thing we want to know, right? And then we kind of want to know what you do and who you are. That's what God's doing here. He's revealing his glory. See, what brings him glory is, is that his character is glorious. Ours is not. His is glorious, and it's worthy of praise. The fact that he's long-suffering and patient, that's worthy of praise and worship. So the other thing that he does in this presence is, in this story here, is he's done what he's done uh, many times up to this point. When they came from Israel, how did the uh, children of Israel know, or from Egypt, how did they know where to go? Yeah, there was a pillar. There was a, a cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it was a Shekinah glory of God. It was a physical created, it wasn't because God is spirit and cannot be seen. So he created a Shekinah glory that represented his, his character that they could see, and he wanted to be with them. When, when they did in the wilderness, and they put the tabernacle, where did they put it? Where God would come down on the tabernacle every day. Where was the tabernacle? It was exactly in the center. Three tribes on the north, three on the, the east, west, and the south. Right smack in the middle, God is dwelling among his people. And you see him because what, it, what happened? Every time Moses would go in to speak with the Lord, they all came out to see him go in to the presence of God. 
And they worshipped as he was speaking with God. They saw his presence, the Shekinah glory. Another aspect of God's glory, his name, his character, his Shekinah, is his creative and powerful acts. Notice what he said about uh, Pharaoh and his army in Exodus 14. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh through his chariots and his horsemen. See, because Egypt was one of the most powerful empires in the world at that time, and they were nothing to God. Uh, By the way, how many uh, Israelites needed to use their swords to take out Pharaoh and his army? None. They drowned. Water. And that glory was told to everyone. See, all the nations, when the Israelites were coming to go into the promised land, they heard about that. They heard about that amazing act. Wow. They heard about the plagues. We've been reading in uh, Samuel, and uh, we're, we're talking uh, 400 years later, and they, they are still talking about, oh, when the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We remember when the Ark of the Covenant was with them way back in Egypt, 400 years ago. They're still talking about it. And they said they were afraid, the Philistines. 400 years, and it didn't happen in their country. They heard about it. His glory was being proclaimed. And so there is no greater glory than uh, his creation. Notice what Hebrews 1 says. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. By the way, when you're the heir, what do you get? everything. So remember, from him, through him, to him. See, he's the heir. He's going to get it all. Uh, He was appointed heir of all things. Through him also he made the world. From him. He's the creator. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, his character. And upholds all things by the word of his power. And you, verse 10, and you, Lord, Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. See, the works of God bring him glory. Because you go, as the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Psalm 19. When you look up and you go, wow. And even our scientists today, I was watching a show just last week, the, 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 the exponents just keep getting longer with the number of galaxies that exist. Wow. His works are great and bring him glory. Sixth, uh, the fifth thing is what brings him glory is being our savior and redeemer. Notice what he did. The enemies of God, Egypt, God went in, took their slaves, and made him his prince and princesses. Sound like a fairy tale? (laughs) Took their slaves, 
and made them his princes and princesses. Heirs to the royal family. That's amazing. He redeemed them out of slavery and made them children of the king. And as he went on the mountain, he was wanting to enter into a covenant relationship with them. And that covenant and that relationship, that intimacy, glorifies him. Now, here's something that I just uh, point out here that's, to me, so amazing, is how we live gives him glory. Uh, Go to the next slide there. Uh, Keep going. Again. Uh, Cool. I wished I were there. Uh, (laughs) One more slide. Perfect. Ten Commandments. Now remember, this is all about the glory of God, and in this time when he says, God, show me your glory, God says, go, go get some new tablets. So I'm going to do the Ten Commandments round two. So in the very context of giving the commandments again, he's showing his glory. What about the Ten Commandments gives God glory? Now notice this. The first four commandments all have to do with how we relate to God. But notice, first commandment is that you should have no other gods before me. Why? Because Baal is not the same person as Yahweh. Lord Krishna, Allah, is not the same, doesn't have the same attributes. That's why I'm to have no other gods before me, so I'm exalting God's attributes. And how do I know what those are? Part of the covenant agreement, the book of Moses is actually the document of the covenant. Have you ever bought a house? You've done a lot more signing of documents than you ever wanted. That's the paper agreement for the terms of what you're entering into, right? And if you don't follow through on your part, what happens? People come to your door. You're entering into a covenant. This is the covenant. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And so when you, when you agree to have no other gods before him, I'm exalting his character because there is no one like him. There is only one God. And then when I, I don't worship any graven images, because how in the world do you put a picture of God? There isn't one. That's why he created his own Shekinah glory, so that you know the power, his presence is there, but it's not of any created thing. Uh, And so we worship the Shekinah when we don't worship other images. And we honor his name uh, by not taking it in vain. He is holy. He is righteous. He is the most high God. And then you'll notice when it talks about keep the Sabbath holy, why do you keep the Sabbath holy? Because in six days he... Created, creation. See, it's his works. The seventh day you rest. Every time you uh, keep the Sabbath, you are acknowledging his creation as creator. From him. From him is where we're from. Him, the creator. And I'm acknowledging that every time uh, the children of Israel uh, kept the Sabbath. And that's exactly the next verse uh, there in Exodus 20. It literally says, Because 
God created in six days, and in the seventh day he rested, magnify him as creator. That's exactly what's there in that passage. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, these are not just interesting rules. If you keep them, you glorify him. Does that make sense? So the key is, when you obey God, and you begin to reflect his glory, he gets praise. I used to do, I won't do it today because I don't want to violate you. I used to do the moonwalk with my little white glove, you know. Uh, And so when I do the moonwalk, who do you think of? Michael Jackson. Imitation is the greatest form of worship. Correct? So when you behave just like God, he gets glory. And by the way, when you don't act like God, and yet you say you're a Christian, what do you do to his reputation? You defame it. And Moses was concerned about the reputation of his holy God among the nations. And why were they possibly going to get wiped out? Because they rebelled against a holy God. They created a golden calf. And you know what they said? Look here, behold. That's what they said. Look here is our God who brought us out of uh, Egypt. Yeah, we worked the last few days putting it together, and here's our God. Again, who made that God? They did. As you can see, when the Reformers went back to Scripture and they realized that everything is about the glory of God, their lives needed to change. It wasn't about Sunday attendance, attending a confessional on a regular, in irregular uh, basis, uh, and doing a few Hail Marys. They realized that bringing God glory was completely different. If you would, turn over in your, your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. What the Reformers realized is that every area of their life should give God glory. Every single area. Not just church activity. See, because in the Middle Ages, there had developed a theology of sacred versus... What are they, what's the other? Sacred versus... Secular, right. So only God time on Sunday and what the priest does, that's sacred. But the second you walk outside the door of the, the, uh, uh, the church, now when I go to work, when I take care of my family, I earn a living, it's all secular. It's not God-honoring activity. It's just stuff I got to do. Now notice what God says. Because, see, the Reformers went back to the Scriptures and said, what do the Scriptures say? Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Wow, eating bonbons can bring Jesus glory. Wow. Wow. See, and what's amazing about that, there there was a little controversy going on here about food, sacrifice to idols and things like that. It's kind of the context here. But the issue is, is everything that we should do should be done in faith for his glory. I'm worshiping him in everything that I do, everything that I say. 
Let me just read real quick from uh, Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Verse 23, whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. First Peter, when he starts talking about people in the church serving others in the church, he says, whoever speaks, do so as one who is speaking the very utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do it as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Everything that I do is to be for the glory of God. It completely changes how you live. In other words, now here's what's amazing. Uh, Saturday and Friday, we had a parent conference here. And uh, the children of Israel, when they were in the wilderness, and the Shekinah glory of God was literally in their presence, you knew God was there. You didn't have to ask. You just woke up and you saw. God is here. When Solomon built the temple, same thing happened. The presence of God came down and filled the temple. Filled it. If you read uh, the prophet Ezekiel, because of their sin, they started worshiping idols. They were immoral. Because of their sin, it says the Shekinah glory of God slowly began to leave the temple. And then he goes out the east gate and goes out to... uh, Oh, what's the hill? Help me. Thank you. Soul to the man in the back. Mount of Olives and goes into heaven. Lo and behold, by the way, guys, when Jesus returns, where's his foot coming back? Mount of Olives. Is that a coincidence? No. And then he's coming in and he's going into his temple. See, the key is When we worship him, his presence is there. When there was sin, his presence left. Now, get this. As Christians, where is the Spirit of Christ? He's in us. Wow. He dwells in us. I don't have to go to church for him to be there. He is wherever I am. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. The Shekinah glory of God is right here. And he gives me the ability and the power to live every area of my life for his glory. And so this motivated the reformers. Let me go real quick here. If you go to the slide, uh, Clover, uh, that talks about uh, the the reformers. Uh, uh, Next one. Oh, and by the way, uh, the first four commandments is love God, and then the last six have to do how you treat other people. Don't lie to them, don't steal, don't take their wife, don't covet, you know, what have you, don't murder. Jesus said the exact same thing. What's the great commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How do you glorify me? Do the four commands for God, do the last six for others. It's the same. That's how you glorify me. Love God, love others. So the, the, the reformers, because of the impact of the gospel and scripture, 
and realizing that everything is to be done for the glory of God, all of a sudden they started looking at every area that's going on in their life and said, how do we need to reform this? So when it came to their doctrine, uh, lots of uh, theology books were written. Uh, Calvin's Institutes actually were uh, their major theological works that are done in seminaries, but he wrote them for the layman. So they would have basic, he literally called it basic biblical instruction. Why? Because what were everything in the Roman Catholic Church written in? Latin. How many could read Latin? Only the priest. So they created instruction so the people could learn the word of God. Uh, In the church, how it was reformed is uh, they realized that uh, a Christian was uh, someone who believed in Jesus. The old way of looking at church was by parish. Anyone ever heard that? Oh, I attend such and such parish. The concept behind that is, is is a geographical area around the building. So everyone who's in that circle is a member of that church. What's the problem with that geographical definition of a church? A good chunk of them don't know Christ. They redefine who the church was. Only those who believe in Jesus Christ and have made him Lord. Those are members of the church, whether you're near the church or not, no matter where you live. See, they redefined everything because definitions had been created that were not biblical. Uh, They reformed marriage and the family. Uh, The most important person in the church that you respected was who? Yes, someone said it. Who's the most important person you saw every Sunday and you respected him? The priest. Was he married? No. Marriage was not seen as a priority uh, and a value. And kids were, were uh, a problem. They can get in the way. But they work well on the farm. See, they're very practical. But it wasn't about relationship, love, and souls for heaven. And so what happened is a whole different perspective of marriage was pursued. Your wife is not simply someone who's a baby factory and produces future workers for the farm, but she's someone I love. Because Christ died for who? The church, and that's his bride. Oh, he cherishes his bride. He even died for her. Hmm. Maybe I should do the same. Reformed education. All of a sudden now what mattered is not uh, the, uh, the uh, oh, what's the word I want? Not academy. Uh, what's that? Uh, what, what were the institutes that were the university? Yeah, universities. Yeah, the universities in the Middle Ages were only for the wealthy. They, they actually had another word for it. Uh, and they, they were for the, uh, the wealthy. Only the wealthy could afford to go there. Uh, and that's why many would become monks is because you, get, you could get free education. Because by being a member of the church and a monk, you could get educated. The reformers, they started schools, colleges, everywhere. And they wanted to educate the laity so they could read the word of God. They wanted everyone to know the word of God because, see, the corruptions that occurred in the Catholic Church was because you had to believe that what the priest was reading you in Latin and interpreting to you was true because you couldn't read it yourself. You were totally at their mercy of how they interpreted it. 
the reformers changed education. Uh, they reformed uh, society and government. I don't have time for that. I've got to roll uh, because there's a couple things I want to just mention. And I've decided I'm only going to do... There were three things I wanted to, to discuss, but I'm only going to uh, discuss uh, one due to time. Uh, I'll just say the point, uh, but uh, I'll have to pass on it. Here at Ambassador, because of the Reformation and the five solas, and because if you look at all the history of the Bible, Reformation is normal. Reformation has to be normal. It takes one generation to go corrupt. That's all it takes. And so here at Ambassador, we need to always be asking ourselves, where am I with God myself, and where are we corporately with God? And we need to always be asking ourselves, is there things that need to change? So when people look at the Reformation and say, well, that was horrible, you know, that uh, you know, they, they were calling things wrong. No, we're all to evaluate ourselves and see if there's any wicked way in us, right? We're to actually ask God to help us with that because we tend to deceive ourselves. That's why in Scripture it always says, don't deceive yourself. <laughs> why does it keep saying that? Because we always deceive ourselves. We notice our friends' problems, but not ours. Okay? Especially our spouses. <laughs> All right. Enough said before I get in trouble. All right. But the point I did want to focus on is how do we as a church and how should uh, uh, each of us individually uh, I speak with people who identify themselves today as Roman Catholic? And I, I want to just unpack this for a second. Think of this question for a minute. Prior to 1517, when Luther nailed the 95 Theses, how many Protestants existed in the world? None. So does that mean there were no Christians in the world until Martin Luther repented? and discovered justification by faith. And where were those Christians? They were in the Roman Catholic Church. I know that was shocking. <laughs> or the Eastern Orthodox Church that was out of Constantinople. That's where they were, because they were the, that was the church. Okay? Now... I know your, your mind's going, oh, man, I, I just picked a fight right there with that uh, statement, but actually not. What I want to do is make a point. Remember Elijah? Elijah had this guy named Ahab and this great wife of his named Jezebel. Uh, and they were uh, totally sold out to another religion in the country of Israel. They had prophets and prophetesses to Baal and to Asheroth. And they literally, the official, they had changed the official religion to Baal and Asheroth. And they actually had temple prostitutes. That's how you worshipped. That was part of the worship. Okay. And so Elijah, he has this little duel with uh, the prophets of Baal. And he actually wins. And they actually have a lot of the prophets and the prophetesses put to death. Uh, but Jezebel wants him killed, and so he runs for his life. And lo and behold, 
he wants to kill himself, and God refreshes him. And then he runs to Mount Sinai. Hmm, that's interesting. The very place that Moses was. And it literally says there in First yeah, Kings 19, he went to Horeb, the mountain of God. And God says, Elijah, why are you here? And twice, twice, Elijah says, they've killed all the prophets. There is no one except me who serves you. I'm it. And if they kill me, all worshipers of God are gone. Twice he says that. And then God says an amazing thing. He says, you know what, Elijah? There are 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee or kissed Baal. And I have reserved them for myself. Now, did Elijah know them? God did. And they were in the country where Baal and Ashtaroth worship was official religion. And yet they were within that system still staying true to God. Now, with that said, uh, going back to Romans 11 where we started, notice what he said. Uh, Paul, Paul said there was a remnant. There was a small portion of the nation of Israel, Israel easy for you to say, Israel, uh, who had seen Jesus as the Messiah and were worshiping him. There was a remnant. But the others were hardened. How do we address someone who says they're inside the Catholic Church? I would say and propose we address them the same way that Jesus did a Jew who said they were a Jew. Okay, here we go. You with me? Go. How did Jesus handle those who said they were Jews? The Pharisees were saying that all the time. Well, I'm a Jew. I'm a father of Abraham. You know what Jesus' response was? If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Ten commandments reflect his glory. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. Hmm. Thou shalt not kill. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you do not hear my word. It gets worse. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks is a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and a father of lies. And by the way, in the Garden of Eden, what was the first lie? You can be God. You don't need to worship him as God. You can be your own God and determine what's right and wrong. For 
verse 47. And uh, sorry, I didn't give you the the reference on this. It's uh, John 8. And he says, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear me because you are not of God. See, they said, we're we're children of Abraham. We're in the family here. But he says, no, you're not. Because you don't love me, follow me, obey me. You're not hearing me. In fact, you're wanting to kill me. You're not in the family. You've got the wrong dad. But they thought they were. Because they were looking at their genealogy rather than their spiritual father. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 9, again, that 9 to 11 passage where he's talking about the relationship of Israel and Gentiles. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Hmm. Hmm. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Abraham had multiple sons, right? Yeah, he had Isaac and... Ishmael. See, the descendants of Ishmael were not given the promise, but only those through Isaac. Not everyone who's a child of Abraham is a member of the promise. And so what he's saying is, uh, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. Paul said it. Jesus said it. The issue is, is, do you love me? Do you obey me? Do you realize that I alone am the way to God the Father? I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except through through him. See, do I believe that Jesus is God? Do I believe that he's my Savior? You know, they might actually be in the Catholic... Here's my experience. I would say probably 95% of those that I've spoken with who said that they are Catholic, here's some things that you need to know. They do not know what their own church teaches. I, I would say 95% of those spoken, they have no idea what their leadership teaches. I have to inform them. But you know what? That's the point I want to make. They don't need to know that. That's not the issue. What do they need to know? The gospel. That's what they need to know. So what I do is I just say, hey, you have the same Bible I do. Let's, let's both consult the same Bible. Oh, we, we have the same Jesus. Let's go there and let the word of God through the Holy Spirit bring conviction that they're a sinner who needs Christ alone through grace alone and they come to him through faith alone. See, we don't need to fight a battle that's unnecessary. Just simply bring him to the truth of Scripture and let God do his work. Does that make sense? That's been my personal experience. And, and you show respect and honor where they're at. And uh, God takes it from there. Let me finish with this. Here at the bridge, or <laughs> ambassador, wow. Bridge is the mother church I came from. 13 years, it'll do it to you. Uh, here at Ambassador, uh, we teach the five solas. And uh, do you mind putting up the quote, the final quote here? Why are these five solas so important for us today? Here's why. If we deny sola scripture, scriptura, we effectively make our own wisdom and experience 
the authority in all spiritual life and not the revealed word of God. It has to be sola scriptura. Number two, if we deny sola gratia or grace alone, we elevate our own will above the sovereign will of God. And by the way, when Abraham became uh, the founder of the nation of Israel, did Abraham choose God or did God choose him? God came to him. Number three, if we deny sola fide, how we come to Christ and respond to the gospel, if we deny sola fide, we exalt our own self-righteous works while diminishing the saving work of Jesus Christ. Number four, if we deny sola Christus, we fix our gaze on created things and not on Christ. Then we're doing idolatry, the second command. As the object of our worship and adoration, a denial of biblical Christian doctrines make us idolaters and robs God of the glory due his name. However, if we live and believe in such a way that glorifies the Lord, then all of our Christian life exists sola deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Lord, like Elijah and Moses, we're so grateful that when they asked to see your glory, you were willing to show it. And you've done the same for us by sending your son. He was the word in the beginning. And you said through the word, you created everything. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of truth and grace. Lord, thank you. Help us to exalt him in our lives. Help us to evaluate like the reformers, those areas of our life where we're not giving you glory and we're stealing it for ourselves. Lord, forgive us and change us for your majesty.